Hello everyone, welcome to the 367th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your decisive host, Mason, joined by my indecisive co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? I'm not sure how I feel about it. Mm. Do you want to talk about that, or what do you think we should um, I like to talk I about just, I just haven't decided how I'm really feeling today, you know? No, that's fair. I, I mean... I know that I'm feeling pretty good about this week's episode. We get to talk about modern, modern horizons, and I'm excited to do that. I, I love modern; it's a great format. Yeah, modern is pretty great. It's it's been kind of frustrating not be able to play as much as I would want because the cards have been hard to get my uh, my hands on. But chests are through the roof on Moto, so I cashed out real real good today. Nice. We love to hear that. Well, we're back. We took a week off last week due to some stuff going on in the real world, and just kind of hard to schedule an episode. But we're here, and we're going to talk all about Modern Horizons 2, which officially drops in paper the Friday of this recording. But first, our always improving moment, because if we're not getting better, we're getting worse. And Abe, how did you always improve during this two-week break? Uh, I spent the whole two weeks working on taking some time to relax. I feel like you've said it a lot, uh, especially in the last like few months. I know you've had some, like, stressful real life stuff going on uh and been giving yourself time and taking time for yourself to make sure that you're like you know make sure that you're good and uh you know i honestly hadn't really taken much time to process all of like coming out of uh coming out of i guess the majority of the of the pandemic with getting vaccinated and finishing college graduating the semester and Really just taking a deep breath, exhaling, and just relaxing for a bit. Uh, not really worrying about the next step immediately, but uh, but living in the moment for a bit while I have the chance. So, Nice. That's awesome. I love to hear that. I have jumped headfirst into the fighting game Guilty Gear, uh, Guilty Gear Strive, specifically the new one. And uh, the always bring moment, though, comes from the process of learning something and getting it down understanding concepts pretty quickly and so what i improved at though is i went and i found videos and i started watching these videos and trying to think about really what they're saying and how to break it down and how, how to understand in ways that i do because a lot of this fighting game content there's a lot of it out there you know fighting games are very popular and especially leading up to the release of the game there have been some open betas there's a good amount of content on there and the Guilty Gear series seems to be fairly popular, so there's just a lot going into it. And after it dropped, there was a whole bunch of content to kind of take and absorb and parse. And honestly, the thing that was the most helpful and the biggest thing was actually like funneling out the content I shouldn't watch. So I've played games like Smash a good bit, but I never really tried to get super high or climb to like elite Smash or anything. I just wanted to be better than the average person. You know, I wanted to be able to play games with my friends and not get embarrassed was kind of the goal. But with Guilty Gear, I'd like to climb the, the ranked ladder to the highest thing, to the, the heaven is what it's called. It's a tower. Um, and it's actually kind of funny. They're, they're all the, the floors, Abe, are like things like System of a Down and like references to songs and stuff of that genre. So you're on the stairway to heaven. It's, you know, a little Oh, that's moment. sick. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it until I like looked at the floor name I was on. And I was like, isn't that a thing? And I, like, I looked at all the other floor names. And I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> What super cool for their rank system like that, but there was sorry. So there's a bunch of content out there that is for people who actually know a lot about these fighting games. And while I know a little bit, I haven't done the stuff a whole bunch. So 
I actually just was like filtering out and choosing not to watch that stuff because the time isn't very effective. And I think it's a great kind of example of knowing what you should be looking for when it comes time for your content and how I'm going to apply it to magic really is that, you know, sometimes I should say it like this, most of the time I just consume all the content, right? Even back when we were grinding SCGs pre-COVID and there was only so much time between weeks, I was just basically reading and listening to everything I get my hands on at all times. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't really marketed towards me or might not be helpful for that. I'm probably giving myself a disservice by using my time even passively while driving, listening to something like that. And I should spend my time more effectively and kind of focus on what's going to be best for me. So while, you know, I think it's really good to actually keep in touch with like the basics of magic and the beginner stuff and the newer things going on. I think that often when people kind of get to where we are, Abe, or, uh, you know, above us that like they don't keep in touch with that a lot. I think it leads to a lot of disconnect, a lot of confusion, a lot of problems. Um, and I try not to have that happen, but I think that it's important for me to, when the time comes, focus in on that sort of stuff. And I can always go back and listen to those things, you know, like on the way back from an event where there's not going to be time for the data to be processed or whatever. So I think really doing that, it was super helpful. And I've, you know, been climbing the ranks of that game very quickly, um, relative to my skill level. So I, I'm, I've been super excited by that. I can't wait to apply it for magic. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember, um, I don't know if you know Anthony Lowry, but I remember when, Dragon Ball Fighters came out. It was his first fighting game, and he like just dove right in, took it all in, and he loved it. He like became huge. He loves like a bunch of fighting games now. Had never played one beforehand, and now like it's one of his favorite things. He does a lot of uh, he tweets like good tips for people who are like just picking up a fighter for for the first time, especially when big he, ones drop. He, he like, was tweeting about Strive a bunch, yeah. I saw yeah, him. I think he's playing it now too. I know I know he plays some Skullgirls. I don't know if he still plays Fighters or not, but I, I think he's getting into Strive. Um, but yeah, I, I just think stuff like that's awesome. And I, uh, you know, good luck. Good luck laddering against the Internet's finest gamers with their fight sticks screaming at their <laughs> monitors as you, I don't know, wake up super them or something. It's Anyways, that's probably enough about fighting games and other stuff along those lines. If you want to support the show, a way to do that is go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Thank you so much if you do support the show. We love to have you. The show will always be free. Thanks to people like Oasis Games, who also sponsor the show. You go to OasisGames.com right now, and you can pre-order and buy your Modern Horizon 2 cards and have them shipped on out to you. June 17th, I believe, is when the set drops. That's wrong, 18th. Uh, and you'll have your cards shipped to you, get them right away. Hopefully, you know, if you're vaccinated, everything's safe, you can play like a 1 or a 2K coming up. I see those all over the internet. It's very exciting. And you can use code CCMTG at checkout to get uh, 10% off I'm sorry, to get 4% off your first order and use code would that be good to get 15% off your very first order. Uh, yeah, and if you are, let's say, someone who doesn't need all that paper stuff in their life, is still married to the grind of Arena, love and laddering to Mythic, uh, but you need to do it more in style, you should go over to Grey Viking Games. I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say it by now if you're a regular listener, but uh, in addition to their uh, code CCMTG at checkout for 10% off. They have currently uh, promo code Constellation to save $5 on your purchase of uh, Full Art Land Planeswalker deck codes. So if you like get one of the ones that has them in it, uh, you can get $5 off in addition to your 10% off the rest of your order using CCMTG at checkout and uh, pimp out your arena account a bit. You know, treat yourself. Do a little something. There's still they, Modern Horizons is out. It's not for you. But, you know, when uh, 
What's the name of the core set, Mason? The when the Forgotten the, Realms, the D. Yeah, when set. the Forgotten Realms set comes out, you know you're gonna be the talk of the town with your brand new, you know, exclusive uh secret lair sleeves and stuff that you uh you got from Grey Viking Games. So you know do it for yourself. Abe, we're two weeks from spoilers starting on Forgotten Realms. I'm so tired already. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on to the Modern Horizons. Modern Horizons 2 has been a super exciting set when you last heard us talk to you in your ears with our beautiful voices. We talked about how the set looks really strong, looks really powerful. Doesn't look to be as broken as Modern Horizons 1 was kind of the sentiment going into it. And I, I, I know this is going to be a controversial take. I think minus one card, that statement's still true. I, I think there are some definitely strong cards in Modern Horizons 2. But, um, you know, even even the Hogak, as you would say, of this set, I don't think is as busted as it is in older formats uh, or comparative to Hogak was. So we're going to talk about just three big cards that have really shaped Modern Horizons, uh, modern format, and talk about how those cards impact decks because they've impacted a lot of decks and how it's impacted the metagame. And Abe, I don't think we can start this conversation without going over probably the strongest card in the set, and my biggest regret not pre-ordering four of them because I knew they'd be good in Amulet. I just didn't realize it'd be great in everything. And that's Urza Saga. Uh, Urza Saga, if you don't know, is an enchantment land saga that has three chapters, just like every saga. Uh, the first is you get to make a colorless mana. The second is you can two and tap it to make a construct, very similar to the one Urza makes or the old Karn from Dominaria makes with a minus. So equal to the power of all the total artifacts on the, your side of the table. And then the chapter three is you search your deck for a one or zero. Specifically, it has to have a zero. It can't be none. It has to be a zero or double X, since double X is zero. Uh, mana cost card and put it onto the battlefield. And this card has totally changed modern. It has supercharged artifact decks. And it's also become a field of the dead type thing. Because what's happened is that we've realized we can actually activate the second chapter twice. Because even though you take up to the third, you don't immediately sacrifice your land, and you can still activate the previous part of the saga. So, what happens to a lot of these decks now is they'll have a couple good artifacts. For example, Amulet might have Amulet of Vigor, and then maybe an Expedition map that they can have some benefits from. They'll play the saga. It will make some constructs along the way, which they'll use to not die, or pressure control decks. And then they'll go search up their super powerful thing that ties their strategy together. Um... And that's just the first level of it, so we'll kind of start there, Abe. And Abe, what do you think of these Saga decks specifically and things like Amulet, like Lantern Control that's come back, that are really leaning in on all pieces of the Buffalo? Uh, I think it's like really interesting how a card like Urza's Saga can be so innocuous and so powerful, but uh, something that I think Ari Lax said in his article this week was just that, like, the fact it's so low deck building cost that all you have to do is like kind of have this package of uh, some amount of, you know, Mishra's Bauble or uh, people play Expedition Map or Brainstone, uh, even alone that plus some artifacts already makes this card really powerful as just a land uh, really fueled things. But then when you start to see it, uh, I know that in the first week cards run Magic Online, uh, Dom Harvey won a challenge with Hardened Scales featuring uh, four copies of Rizzo Saga where, you know, that card obviously just very good when your entire strategy is artifacts. And I've seen some really nasty things from Amulet players who were able to 
more consistently produce an amulet of vigor. So play fewer of the games where the deck is kind of like combo light. And it, it just really, I don't know. It, it's hard to say without, if you haven't like watched a game play out with it or played with it yourself, it's hard to say how good the card is. Cause it looks kind of like just fine on paper, but uh, it really has changed a lot about the way that the games are playing out and what people are trying to do in the format right now. Yeah, it has allowed the artifact decks to just be super consistent and also give them this kind of card that gives them a little bit of a punch because you wouldn't think that the Urza's constructs are that would be that big of a problem, right? They're like, maybe even if in the early turns you're going to have a good start talking about a 4-4 four, four or a 5-5 five, five if you're really doing it, you know? It's very hard to like get the construct down, get a lot of artifacts, not be like an affinity-style deck. Um on the battlefield and you would think that wouldn't be a huge problem but just kind of the way it plays out where like you're able to get two of those bodies so now like if you're a deck that's trying to trade resources their land generated three pieces of material right like the two the two urza constructs and then the one or the zero they got and the one or the zero can vary a lot from deck to deck like uh abe mentioned hardened scales was the winner of the first challenge and is a huge getter from this deck besides being able to get things like the Ozolith, which completely and utterly supercharged that deck. The first Ozolith is better than almost any card in the Hard Scales deck, except maybe Hard Scales. It just turbocharges the entire archetype. But even getting an Arcbound Worker or a card like that with a couple of new versions we got in Modern Horizons 2, even one of those as the third chapter seems innocuous, but has such huge implications for this deck and this. The, there is a saga itself. Like, that's another artifact that makes your Urza things bigger. And now you're beating your opponent down. And this is all like in the developing stages. But in the late game, if you've been managing to grind them, now they've got this one card that's a land. Very hard to interact with, especially in game ones, that's going to hit them. And it's also your pivot plan, right? I'm talking about playing decks like Hardened Scales, uh, you know, Amulet, uh, Lantern. These sort of decks, two of those three don't use lands predominantly. So you're going to have a really hard time like sideboarding in cards that can beat the Urza Saga that also hit these things. Now, there's stuff like Force of Vigor, sure, that can hit both, but it does ask for some very specific type of answers in order for you to beat the value that this card generates, and it has fundamentally changed modern. I mean, Field of the Dead allowed a lot of decks to go long, right, and completely take over games, and while this doesn't, you know, 100% lock up a game like Field of the Dead does, it's very close. And with decks like Amulet, where you can actually use Bounce Lands and can, like, uh, in tandem with Secure Tribe Scouts, you really actually get a very similar Field of the Dead experience. And you completely and utterly, like, can grind out almost anyone. And now they're forced to answer these other things they don't want to. And it's just a really tall ask for the opponent to actually keep up. And it really puts a lot of pressure on the format, right? Now your decks, you're going to have a hard time being ones that trade for card advantage. You need some element that can go under them, and you have to clock them because they're going to tie their man up and making these Urza things, or they're going to have some huge payoff from the Saga popping. So you need to try and kill them. Having the Ozolith, you know, enter the battlefield as a hard skills player generally means with something like Archbound Ravager that you can kill the opponent, which seems like not a huge ask or wouldn't be that hard, and it's true. It's not that hard for them to do that sort of thing. So what are you going to do? You need to be fast. So it puts a lot of time pressure on the format, I would say, do you think that's a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah, so it's it's like, I don't know, it's a card that you would think because it's a land that you have to sacrifice might be like bad in the developing stages, but because it can get such a, like getting a one-mana artifact in modern can do so much for you. 
like in hardened scales, it can go get, like you said, like uh, some sort of arcbound worker. It can go get. You don't have to play so many copies of animation module or the Ozolith, which are good in, you know, you, they're not good in every game, but they're so good in some games. Like they're playing a grindy matchup and you have um, an animation module. Uh, it's kind of unbeatable. Like making that many servos is so tough to grind through. Uh, in the same way that, like, if you need to go for speed, finding an Ozolith makes it so that your Ink Moth Nexus will just kill someone. Uh, like, that is so powerful to have access to in the first, like, three or four turns of the game that it makes your deck that much more consistent at being a turn four deck when you're aggressive. The fact that it's also made, like, the slower strategies, like um, Lantern Control, more consistent at finding their one pithing needle to lock up a game where their hand is developing, or they can just go find the lantern because they didn't have it, but they had the random mill artifacts, or they can go, I don't know, find a Zurin orb or something out of their sideboard so they can sack lands. I, I don't even know what's in the lantern decks right now, but like just think about the core of the old deck. It fits in so well to do that so naturally. And like even decks without bounce, bounce lands, like you were saying with amulet, uh, like there was a blue-white control list that played some expedition maps and was just able to, if it needed to, chain them off and use these, like, Urza Sagas basically as, uh, like, Celestial Colonnades, where you're, like, this is how I'm going to end the game and kill you, is I'm going to make, like, you know, two to four constructs over the course of a few turns, and then now I have, like, four four fours. So, you know, yeah. good luck. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's pretty pretty strong and i think it's you know it's a card that people have talked about like doesn't need to be banned i'm not so sure i'm convinced of that yet it is obviously not even out yet it's just been out on magic online there's still card availability availability issues people haven't really been playing all the counters to it they've been kind of playing the new stuff um but it definitely has changed games to the point where uh the decks that play it if you like, A, if you're going to build a deck and you have a deck that you have that you want to, like, tune for your local weekly that's just starting up again uh, post-COVID, bring some artifact hate. Bring some bring some good, strong artifact hate. Like, Force of Vigor is very good. Um, Shatterstorm, I think, is in a pretty good spot. But you're, you're going to want it. Uh, but, uh, you know, like, the other things does the format. It gives decks... A, a way to be both faster and go longer than they had previously, which is like just at, at such a low deck building cost. It's just a land. Yeah. So. And I, I think, you know, it, it, like one way to look at this, I think really is like, okay, it's the eighth copy of a lot of your cards, right? Like we talked about before, like Lantern really needs a Lantern or a mill piece, right? Now you have four more copies of all those things. But the other thing this does, and you mentioned earlier about how they're kind of committing their man to this and, you're losing a land is that they built their decks sort of better, right? Quote unquote, kind of like we did with Luris, where our curves are much more condensed and the cards we're playing are much more mana efficient than maybe they are normally because we do realize we're going to sacrifice a land, right? We're going to be down one. And now we're building decks with these low uh, curves as to allow for the fact that, you know, we're going to have our mana tied up and we would like to do more than just construct. Like the construct's very good, but I'd like to also, you know, maybe develop. Uh, an Azusa or an Explorer, or maybe I want to play an Arcbound Worker as well, you know, and so I'm going to play another one of those, and maybe I won't play as many animation modules that were kind of eating my mana before. And I, I think that sort of stuff is actually super powerful for these decks and helps make them better decks, right? Like we're building our decks in better ways. 
Yeah, kind of. I I don't know if like I've really seen a reduction in the curve of a lot of deck lists that I've looked at. Probably because I think that a lot of the decks are, are on this polarized end of like either I'm going to be using this card to like generate a bunch of tokens like the blue eye control deck where it's like I'm going to go get expedition map and that's just going to get me another copy and I'm going to use this as my engine. Uh, or it's like this is my whir of invention like chump blocker slash kill condition like split card uh, on my land. <laughs> you know like yeah. uh, so, so I don't know if it made us build our decks better that that's interesting i you bring that up a lot when we talk about um like just the effects that like new cards coming in has on us and i i know i hadn't thought about it for this but maybe maybe it's got us to play definitely made decks feel better because i think we get to play fewer of our worst cards there are bullets and like our sideboards get to look different because you know you don't need to find your relic of or your graft digger's cage necessarily on the first turn in a lot of a lot of the ways that the the format is right now, you know, like dredge even is usually not until their ox of Agonis turn that it's really scary. Um, if you're like on the play and can just lead on it, you just go find it in your post sideboard games. But like, uh, yeah, you, you just you get a lot more room, oddly enough, for playing like cards that are still pretty good and about as good as the cards you're cutting for them. Like expedition map is still a strong card even like without Ursa Saga because it in, in like a control deck you get to do something on turn one when you weren't doing something anyway and develop your mana better uh you know like playing baubles isn't that big a cost stuff like that yeah yeah i think one of the next cards we're going to talk about actually is a maybe a, a better example example of like how urza saga forces us to build our decks better and we're kind of get there in a minute so i'll, I'll side mention that for now but it is true there hasn't been a huge drastic change like loris forced us to right like we had to play yeah. two cmc or less and I think this has done that in a more subtle way. And like you mentioned, you know, the sideboard, et cetera, is really good. But I think this card is really strong. I think it is the focal point of modern. And I look through a lot of decks of, okay, are we weak to a lot of one or zero mana artifacts? You know, like things like Chalice of the Void, they can search up, which is sometimes really good against like a random deck that maybe you'd want to play. And now you're going to have to fight through that card, you know? Or, okay, can I beat, like, is my deck really reliant on one certain thing? Like, maybe a Gristlebrand or a Gristlebrand type deck. All right, well, they have, like, five Pithy Needles now. Maybe I shouldn't be playing that, you know? Uh, and I think it really does shape everything. While just being a totally reasonable card, it does not ask that much of you. And so doesn't ask much and gives a huge payoff. It's just a very powerful card. Let's talk about the next card, though, that I think has really been shaping modern, has been a huge player. Uh, since its release, and that's Asmoranda, a doodle doodle car. I believe I said that almost right. <laughs> uh, but Asmore is the 3-3 that we kind of talked about with the Underworld Cookbook and the set review. And you can only play her if a card has been discarded uh, this turn. You play her for a red or a black and hybrid. She searches up the Underworld Cookbook, which makes uh, food by discarding a card. And then you can sack two foods to have that creature deal six damage to itself. So... What Asmore's actually done is it's allowed for you to have this one card that kind of ETBs and terminates a creature a lot of the time with how the Asmore decks are built. Uh, and it's actually done a really good job of punishing decks like Amulet Titan. Amulet doesn't have a whole lot of removal in like its main deck. Um, and Asmore, you know, 
is able to actually kill the dryads, kill the amulets, I'm sorry, kill the titans very easily with the Fuji Generate, and just sort of outgrind people, and has been a nice foil to these Urza Saga decks. Um, and the first day we saw Asmarina Duldakar see play, it was very much like Vengevine and Hollow One, and we have all this sort of stuff. And then players realize that we can do stuff like uh, Oval Chaser Daredevil, Daredevil, I believe is the card's name, but it's a uncommon from Kaladesh that when you, when if it's in your graveyard and you put an artifact into play, you return it to your hand, and the cookbook makes you discard a card to make an artifact that's a food, and so it's infinite with the cookbook. Like, your cookbook doesn't untap, so you only get one food a turn, but it has no cost there, and your deck has other ways to make advantage of this. And it's actually just we kind of come this sort of grindy mid-range style of deck that really locks out a lot of creature-based strategies by being hyper-mana efficient, um, by realizing that they are also an Urza Saga deck at times, where they play the cookbook and oven for Witch's Familiar. So, oh sorry, Witch's Oven, my bad, for Cauldron Familiar as well. And Abe, have you seen much of this deck? Doomwake has been streaming it a lot. Uh, Yeah, so... I've seen a lot of really crazy things with this deck, uh, but I think the most like stock version you're likely to see for the time being is uh, like this kind of green black food list, which plays like you know the Daredevil cookbook engine. It plays actually some Trail of Crumbs and Goose. Usually, I've seen. Yeah, it's so uh, it's kind of like a food deck with <laughs> feasting. Yeah, feasting Troll King is it's like. It, it like is trying to be Hogak. It's like trying really hard. It's <laughs> it's got feasting troll king and then the witch's oven like familiar stuff as well as Asmo and uh, yeah it's it's kind of like it, it's its own little package. I didn't really think of too much about like oh like you know it's underworld cookbook like I'm gonna make some food tokens. Food isn't good because the only thing it was ever really good for before this outside of historic and using it with cauldron familiar, which doesn't seem really modern power level was making it an elk with oko so i was like well that's just never going to happen but seeing how good asmo cookbook and oval chase daredevil has been has been like really surprising just the the ability to use the food well with asmo like once you have this really easy stable engine of just making at least one food every turn uh asmo like i I don't know you just can't you can't keep a creature in play. Like, you, you, it, it, it dominates the board. Um, yeah, like decks like humans, that you would think that would like swarm it as well. I, I've watched, I've watched a fair amount of this deck, especially the first week, uh, couple days it was out, and the human decks just often rely on a card to kind of like push a matchup over the edge. You know, like that might be a Thalia, meddling mage, maybe a mantis rider, and Asmo just answers that one, and it's just large enough to answer a lot of the other creatures. So. Asmore kind of plays like Flametongue Kavu for a mana, is uh, one way I've described it to somebody. There's a little bit more setup than that, and you build your deck in a different way, but it comes down and almost always kills something, and then proceeds to, if go unchecked, win the game a lot of the time in creature-based matchups. Yeah, it's also one mana Flametongue Kavu that tutors for half of your engine. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll go get, uh, I'll go get my cookbook, discard, like discard my daredevil get it back uh oh and i played a goose on turn one so uh whoops i guess you're uh i guess you're actually out your one drop nice noble hierarch now good luck developing as i proceed to make two food like on board with my familiar and my cookbook plus my daredevil i'm just making two food right there so now you're in the abyss and taking three (laughs) like that's just so powerful 
Now you play your like medium creature or whatever. I kill it. I've sacked two foods. I trigger my trail. I find some more material. It's it's just so powerful. It doesn't seem like it would be, and it really looks like a meme. It it honestly like when I saw Doomwake's first list, and I think to be fair, the first lists were way memeier than this one. I was like, okay, this is interesting. There's some powerful stuff, but this does seem like a meme. But I'll watch. I'll bite. And it's so funny if you watch his first video on it, he kind of realizes it in real time as like I was, and I imagine a lot of other viewers were, where it's like, well, this Asmore card is kind of messed up. It's kind of soloing these people. Wait, this is kind of good. Could we like do more with this card? And as time's gone on, uh, it's kind of shown that we can. And we've seen, uh, you know, people like our friend Baker, VTCLA, he played a prelim and just was like, I'm putting Mayhem Devil in my Asmo shell. And I'm going to use that as my, like, way to take over instead of Trailer Crumbs, you know? And I think there's a lot of space in this area to be explored. And I think there's a lot going on. And we could very easily see, like, Im- like uh, Emery and Urza and that sort of thing come back along in these sort of shells and play an engine. And I, and I think this card is legitimately uh, one of the stronger cards in the set. And I think it does a great job, actually, of checking Urza's Saga, which is funny. Despite being an Urza Saga deck that, you know, to go get your Witch's Oven or your cookbook, um, and, you know, you make your own little constructs that, since you have all these artifacts to take over, they just, Asimov is very good at killing the constructs. It's very hard for them to be, you know, a 7-7 forever. Um, so, I I really like this card. I, I think it's one of my favorite cards in the set, and I'm very excited to explore what you can do with this card, and it's the only card I've ordered. Um, so... Yeah. Say that what it will, but I, I think this card's just r- pushes a lot of really cool stuff, and it's the reason I've been practicing saying Asmoran and Gulda Goldacar, because I think I'm going to have to for a very long time, and I know that it upsets Abe that I say that sometimes. So I'm just not going to say it. I, I I've made uh, my piece with it that I'm that's just fine. never going to say it, and that's fine because as long as we're all okay with that, I'm not going to say it. Cool. As long as, long as um, you call them at least Asmore, I think we're fine. Uh, we'll get Asmo. I don't know. We'll see. We have it's a just, friend that calls them Car, and it's very frustrating. That is the worst. I, I will. I can guess. promise you. <laughs> yeah. I will never do it. Also, I'm not going to name that person right. because I, now that. that you said that, we both know. I miss them a lot. Yeah, um, it's a shame they passed away, <laughs> disappeared to the ether. Yeah. yeah. But what I will say about uh, the Asmo decks is that because it's red black hybrid. It's so interesting how many different ways this can be taken. And like you said, like it started out kind of as this, you know, like hollow one discardy deck, like red, red, black based. But you could easily be like, okay, I'm going to be blue, red, like Emery, Asmo, and just have like Daredevils to discard or be blue, black and play the same stuff and like have black removal and discard and, and whatever and the deck doesn't change that much. There's the only thing really tying the deck to green right now, I think, is how much it likes having Gilded Goose to make food tokens and uh, how good Trail of Crumbs is at using them, as well as Feasting Troll King being like Hogak esque. I know we all joked about how uh, like Feasting Troll King was was Hogak too, right? Right when Eldrain came out, and it wasn't even one of the most offensive cards in Eldrain. <laughs> as it turns out, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's still still, still really good. Um, I guess green also gets. I've seen lists with like finale of devastation and just tutor it on two. Yeah, I was, pretty... I was gonna bring that up. People have gone really deep to like make sure your deck's playable. It's super funny. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and I think Urza Saga plays in really well to a deck like this that's kind of... I mean, I guess it, it really is, like... It's it's so unique to Magic. I think I've seen decks like it in other games, uh, like other card games I've played, where it it's kind of, like, based around... Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, like, this one Force Wheel deck, but I'm not going to get other games. Um, yeah. But it's, like, it, it has these, like, just couple of core engine pieces that are playing together and trying to, like you know, figure it out. And in this case right now, the packages are, you've got your Urza Saga package where you've got uh, like this, this list I'm looking at right now in front of me has like a shadow spear uh, as well as a pithing needle in addition to its ovens and cookbooks, whichever one it needs more. Uh, and then you're like food familiar Asmo sack, like uh, daredevil feasting troll King stuff going on, uh, which is, I, I think it's like really interesting. There's, there's only really, I guess like 20 cards you quote unquote have to play. And even that isn't necessarily all 20 of them. It's just, there's like five cards you want to play at least three copies of. And from there, that's just the core of your deck uh, with, with this card. And you can really take it in whatever direction you want. So long as you can make it work, right? <laughs> like it, It's just something you can slot in. And, and so long as everything supporting it really works, like that's, I, I kind of do like the Urza idea because you're already going to be making a bunch of these food tokens. You kind of already want cards like Gilded Goose. It just meshes um, to be playing a bunch of... It's a way to fit a bunch of cheap artifacts in your deck with Urza. But I'm not sure how the rest of the numbers really work out. I don't know if there's... Other than Bobble, is there like really something to be worth doing with Emery right now? You know, like... Maybe uh, eating some constructs away, you know? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but then you've got your own constructs and your Asmo. So do you really want to do that? And you've got so many one drop artifacts. Like, is E even good? Um, like, can That's you exciting. can you really set up the turn of like Urza plus counter magic? Like, can you afford to fit like some Archmage's charms or cryptic commands in your deck? And like, without Mystic Sanctuary, is that even like necessarily as good as it was <laughs> when uh, when Urza was good? So I don't know. It's it's definitely one to keep an eye on, and definitely like just such a cool thing to to think about and build with and theorycraft with. I, I've seen so many different takes and ideas on just this one package in the last like week, and uh, you know I think this will continue to evolve beyond where it is now. I, I know that most people I think are defaulting to Jerry's uh, like Jerry's ideas from his article on Star City the other week, but. You know, this is there, there's a lot to do here with this archetype. There's there's a lot to figure out. Yeah, there's I would say so much to figure out that I won't feel like even if I like found a build I thought was good, it'd be so hard to make a declarative statement on it for at least like two or three months just because there's so many different avenues we have to explore and we have to react to everything else going on that it's it's really strong. I think it's really easy for this sort of deck with the green-red package to splash any third color, or green and black for Asmore. And so I think that whole premise is so insane. Um, it's just very, very good. And I think this deck does a great job of making it where there's another pressure on you know decks that go long and grind. They really have to be kind of path to exile you know? If they're going to do that because things like Troll King and Cookbook will just beat them over time. You know, like they can't just be blocking and double bolting you know like snap bolt snapping like that yeah. sort of thing isn't going to work to kill these troll kings you're going to need to really come excuse me commit to beating this sort of deck and so i think this puts a lot of pressure on there and then the final sort of deck uh and card we kind of want to talk about was the ragavan 
the Ragavan decks, and I, I think Channeler kind of falls in here a little bit. We've seen that with Prowess as well. But Abe, what do you think about these Ragavan decks uh, that you've been seeing in modern? I've seen Aspiring Spike play stuff like Grixis to a six and two in the last challenge. Um, the last like challenge was actually won, or no, not the last challenge. The last challenge was won by Soul Herder, but the challenge on Saturday was actually won by this pretty cool Jeskai Blade deck that played four Ragavan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I watched Nassif play some of it today because uh, it's impossible to find Ragavans. I was actually trying to, and I was like, I'm just not going to do this today. Uh, but the deck looked really strong. I think it was like part that Ragavan is really good and part that Counterspell lets you do a lot of things that you couldn't do before the way you build your deck. Like this deck, it's like a Ragavan, Stoneforge, um, Snapcaster deck. That's like the core of its, uh, the core of its threats. And it just uses I guess in some matchups it probably plays turn one like Ragavan and beats down, but I I don't think that's really how it plays out often. You just kind of answer their first couple of things, get your mana up, and then you start dashing uh dashing Ragavan and you just start pulling ahead on mana and cards in like a way that blue white X decks haven't been able to do like ever. I don't know. It kind of feels like, especially with Teferi Time Raveler, the combination of those two cards together is like absurd you just once you have the battlefield clear you can just steal hits that are making you mana and like against most decks drawing you cards because like a modern isn't a, isn't full of cards you can't cast you know so uh yeah it's interesting right like because of the pressures of the other decks and everything we mentioned everyone's trying to be sort of proactive right because everyone's getting on the battlefield really early it's hard to outgrind somebody so you're either trying to get down really quick we have to go way over the top. And the problem is, is that the Ragavan decks play Force Negation, Counterspell, etc. And it's very hard to go and be a combo-based spell deck and go over the top of these sort of Ragavan decks, which are kind of the third pillar of the new modern format. And Ragavan, the dash ability, you know, when I first read Dash, I, I really underestimated how strong it was going to be on a card like Ragavan. Because I remember the old play patterns with some of, like, the Mardu, like, the Surfer, the 3-1, you would, like, dash it out, you know, you dash out a Zergo, and that was your way of playing around a Sweeper. And I kind of thought, well, sure, there's going to be some Sweepers in Modern, but for the most of the time, you're, you're going to play your Monkey on one. You're going to do its thing. And it turns out that's just way wrong. And that what happens is, is eventually you kind of get the game sort of locked up. And so even though you're committing two mana to only get one back, it's not like you have to spend that one mana. You normally can answer anything, and then you use their cards while using your defensive cards to take over the game. And it becomes very hard for your opponent to ever actually, like, kill the Ragavan. Because, like Abe mentioned, they have, like, Teferi Time Raveler. So it's not even like you are traditionally having to, like, you know, like, play your Ragavan. And then they, like, try to bolt it. And you have to decide if you want to counterspell or not, you know. And, like, you get your one mana back or whatever. But maybe they'll sneak something through. They have to go and answer the Teferi now before they can even do this in that build. And there are other builds, like the Grixis one that I saw Aspiring Spike play that were, like, very similar to this, but just had some black cards instead of the uh, the white cards. So you, now you have discard spells that clear the way for your Ragavan uh, and help with those combo matchups even more so now. And it's just been very powerful, actually. And then in the matchups where you do punk people with the turn one Ragavans, it, it takes over the game pretty quickly. Uh, it, it is a card that gets out of control very fast. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's going to sound crazy the way I'm going to describe it, but sometimes it has looked like uh, 
like you pay two mana a turn for your planeswalker that can't die like i don't know like you you're just generating a mana you're like getting your treasure maybe drawing a card for two mana a turn and when your deck has you know hard answers like counterspell like uh like archmage's charm like force negation like cryptic command and the redundancy to to like back that up a small mana advantage two treasures means that you're able to leave up counterspell every turn that you have to take a risk you know and like the amount of security that gives you in like planning your game out and if you you know are playing a deck that like has their own interactive spells or even just their own threats that you can cast like it can snowball so quickly that like turn one Ragavan is almost as scary, I mean maybe as scary as like a turn one Deathrite Shaman because it can just generate mana that stays, you know, like treasures versus being a mana dork. Um, and like beyond that, outside of like the blue decks, I saw a deck in the top thirty two of the challenge that was like a black red rogues deck. I don't know if you looked over the results. I saw any of that. I got to today, but. So this deck, I thought I thought it was super cool. Uh, it was a black red rogues deck where uh, the like core of it, it's like a Luris deck, but it has like Ragavan, Dothy Voidwalker, which is the new three two shadow creature that for black black that if a card be put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you exile it with a void counter on it, and you can like tap and sacrifice the creature to choose an exiled card an opponent owns with a void counter on it and then cast it without paying its cost okay i've seen so like, they weren't black red they were like grixis but keep going yeah so this and it has like robber the rich i think it has a couple of copies of valky and like some croxes and it's hilarious but it's just every card is almost its own like like every card is such a hammer it like can run away with the game on its own everything's a dark confidant in a way it's all drawing it's, it's like all generating card advantage to the point where you have to answer it. Like, if you can't answer the turn one Ragavan, then, like, you know, you're already behind. And if you do and you can't answer the turn two Robber the Rich, then, you know, now you're in bigger trouble. And the fact that this deck also gets, like, like you said about the, uh, like, more uh, controlling, like, Grixis deck that you saw Aspiring Spike play, um, the discard spells plus cards like Ragavan to clear the way is just really good. Like, I. I think Ragavan is... I was kind of low on it, because I was like, oh, you know, it's just a 2-1 for for 1, and, like, that hasn't been good enough. It's not going to be good in Burn, but seeing it in red fair decks has made me really reconsider just, like, the density of card advantage creatures you can pile together to make a different kind of deck than we've been able to see in Modern previously, where your options on ways to make card advantage happen are limited. There is also this argument on the other side that people haven't been playing so many Lava Darts because they've been playing the new cards... Or like Renin Sixes, they've been playing the new cards, and maybe Ragavan can't live there. But for now, I I've been very impressed, especially with the dash ability on it, for it to be like, I, like it feels like, like I said at the start, like a, a planeswalker when you play with it because it's like generating you value every turn, mm-hmm. and you kind of get to defend it in the same way, but it's also immune to combat. <laughs> like I guess you have to keep the battlefield clear, but it's immune to your opponent just having too many creatures and you having to run it out there and have it die. Uh, and it only costs one mana. So it's, it's really good. I, I think it's... I haven't seen it in so many aggressive shells yet, which is just kind of surprising me. You'd think that's where the home for a 2-1 for one is. But the places I have seen it, I think it's been very impressive. 
yeah, that's kind of where Dragon Reach Channeler has been uh, in the aggressive decks, uh, which we can touch on briefly here. But yeah, I, I the dash, I think, specifically for Modern, has allowed Ragavan to just be almost unkillable a lot of the time. It really protects it, and it's your card that takes over the game. That doubles as a one-mana play. And like I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of what Modern, the Modern Horizon cards that are really taking over the format and becoming mainstays and staples, or at least pillars at the moment, are mana efficient and cards that like let us cheat on mana in some way. Uh, and we see that with Asmore, we see that with Ursa Saga, we see that with Ragavan here. And just the treasure, even if you didn't get the card, you just exiled it forever, the top card, you know, whatever. The Ragavan making a treasure is so powerful in modern, especially when these bigger spells, you need to keep and hold them up. But also, if you do turn one into Ragavan and they can't answer it, you're talking about playing something on turn three. Like, obviously, Geist doesn't see play anymore, but just imagine, like, there were whole decks that used to go, like, Noble into Geist. Like, that was an Infect sideboard strategy. It would beat a lot of people. It won an Invitational. <laughs> yeah, it, it's done a lot of good, and it will, like, doing that into Teferi is very strong and very hard to kill on turn two. So I agree, though, that there is still, like, a little bit of new time. And before we went live here, you know, X-Rail, 4-0 to Prelim. With, it, I was looking over, I believe it was 74 of 75 of, like, a, a stock uh, blue-red prowess deck of old. He just had a Bedlam Reveler in there. You know, that was the only difference. Uh, and that sort of deck is still strong. They are still good. And they do stop some of these things, but they do have other issues and other problems. Like, Asmore is a problem for that deck at times. So... It's going to be interesting to kind of see how all these things sort of play out and continue to develop. Um, do you want to talk about Dragon Rage Channeler real quick? It's kind of our, our little last card here, because it is the only other card that's kind of done anything, and we saw over the weekend it see some play in Blue-Red Prowess. Yeah, this card is really good. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to say There's not much to say about it. It's, it's not as exciting as his other cards. It is just like a a Delver, and it's very I easy think, yeah, to I think that Delver. it and Ragavan are both different takes on like what it would look like for a Delver of Secrets style card to exist in modern in the same way that Delver of Secrets exists in Legacy where Delver of Secrets is this card where like it is an efficient clock and it enables like it enabled Blue Tempo to have to start the clock on turn one and just play defense like protecting uh, protecting Delver like since it started seeing play um but like Ragavan and Channeler are like rewarding you for kind of playing an interactive game on different ends. Like if you're playing uh, Channeler, it's like you're you're using the surveillability to make your non-creature spells like hit just enough harder that you're getting rewarded for kind of trying to be aggressive and tempo-y with like some amount of your spells. Uh, and like forcing interaction to make it so that you're you get time for them to find the things they need it works really well with discard and with uh like proactive removal uh whereas ragavan is like more of a i'm gonna protect this card kind of card mm -hmm. um but I, I think that channeler is probably going to be one of the bigger hits from the set just because the more that i've seen people play with the cards the more and more people i've seen talk about how good Chandler is surveilling every time you cast like a bauble is really good. There's already a lot of delirium cards I've seen play in modern before. There was a time where like death shadow would play a grim flare because they were playing traverse anyway. And like this card fits in really well with that. I talked about that on the, uh, on the pick two set review episode two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 
it's just like when your one drop is able to give you both card selection and scaling on its stats, that's just a lot of efficiency. And efficiency is efficiency is advantage every time. I agree. I think at least I, I mean, I feel like maybe others should as well, but the surveil in this card was kind of like maybe not fully appreciated until you see it in play. And then your prowess tech just not drawing that land you need to do. Or binning the lava the, the lava darts. Now you actually have a lethal attacker. We get to clear the way another damage. Or it just turbocharging out your Bedlam Reveler. I saw Patrick Sullivan playing a version of the deck that was playing, I, I believe, four Bedlam Revelers along with this card. And that was just his way of like, hey, I'm going to dump stuff in the graveyard. I want to dump stuff already. This is really powerful when I'm doing this. And it just opens up a lot of doors and it's just so efficient. It's so strong. Yeah, like finding your reveler and turning on your reveler on that card make it a hit in mono red. I've seen people like share lists but not play with them yet. I haven't seen anyone like stream it, but lists of like blue red, like tempo-y decks that use this as a way to like make sure that, you know, I don't have I'm not playing a bunch of serum visions because it's not 2016 or whatever. Maybe you should because you need sorceries for your uh for your channelers to get big, but like having a one drop that you kind of have to answer or else it's going to slowly accrue me advantage. And, and it's like having your Merfolk looter, except not in like 2011 terms, right? Like like yeah. it is a card that's providing you real selection at the kind of speed that you need to be getting selection uh, like in the year 2021. I agree 100%. I, I think it's very strong. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how this all plays out and continues to evolve in modern in the coming weeks. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark and on Card Kingdom each and every week on Thursday writing about something. This week it's modern again. And you can find Abe at More No Things, M-O-R-E-N-O Things. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Criticism.